Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. There's a sermon note sheet for you in the bulletin. Um, uh, this, uh, this message is new and it's a little unusual for me. My wife um, takes notes on uh, all of my sermons when she's in the, in the service. And even though she's heard some of those two and three times, she still takes notes. And she says it keeps her from going to sleep and her mind wandering. Um, um, I've suggested that maybe uh, I should have note sheets at home, but we're not going there. Um, join me in prayer, will you please? Teach us from your word, Lord. Not only that we understand with our minds, but that we are tender with our hearts toward your spirits speaking to our lives. Speak to us, Lord. Your children are listening. Amen. I think most of you know by now that I'm a preacher's kid, raised in the parsonage. My, my dad was not a perfect dad, but a good dad, great dad. My dad was not a perfect pastor, but a wonderful pastor, and I learned a lot growing up in the parsonage and growing up in the church as a kid. I remember well this personal insight that has also become for me a critical lesson for ministry. I remember being really angry with my best friend, Tommy Ryan. I knew I was right and he was wrong and somehow in that frustration and in that moment, I was willing to say anything about Tommy and put him down and raise me up and let him have it with angry words that were just boiling inside of me. You know what that's like, don't you? You remember those childhood conflicts? But that's when my dad sat me down to have a talk. And as I remember, his words are as fresh as like he said them yesterday when he said, Steve, it's not enough to be right. You must be right in how you are being right. You must be right in how you are right. One of the easy things to forget, especially when we know we're right, is that we are in danger of damaging things that God is building by how we are right. Today we're going to study Acts 15. It's a wonderful chapter about two difficult controversies in the early church. You know, conflict is a part of life. It's an inevitable part of ministry. It just is. And there are wonderful stories like this in God's Word where God uses controversy and conflict to bring victory and expansion to His kingdom, but we can short-circuit the work of God, even when we're right, if we handle it wrong. Now, this is a long text, so I'm going to beg you to be patient as we read most of this 
whole chapter, Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared, uh, and they declared to all that what God had done with them. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up. These are believers. Their background is that they're Pharisees. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke upon the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Skip down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by, the word, by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Skip down to verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed 
away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here are two major controversies, conflicts, in the early church. And we need to pay attention to how they resolve them because we've got our own controversies, don't we? The first controversy is about doctrine, theology, the essence of the gospel. Are we saved by the simple grace of God that we receive by faith? Or are there additional requirements? There were those who said, since salvation came through the Jews, Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jewish, the first half of our Bibles is all about how God prepared his Jewish people for the coming of the Savior and that wonderful work on the cross that gives us salvation. But in the church, there were those who were enamored with their Jewishness. They came to Christ from a Pharisee background into the body. And they were proud of Jewish rituals and ceremonies. And they believed and were teaching that to be saved from your sins and to be forgiven with the promise of everlasting life, you also had to become Jewish through circumcision and rituals. So the required circumcision of the men and elaborate washings and baptisms for the women. Do you need to become Jewish to become a believer? In addition to faith in Christ, must we go through these initiation ceremonies? And that teaching was causing havoc among new non-Jewish Jesus followers and the leaders had to sort it out. God had been showing Peter especially, but also Paul and Barnabas, that salvation was by God's grace that we received, not through doing religious stuff, not by the rituals and requirements of the Old Testament law. We receive God's gift of salvation by simple faith, trust, relying on what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do to impress God. Now, it took a long debate to get it clear. We call it, and it's probably titled in your Bible, the Jerusalem Council, the very first church council. The leaders take the responsibility to bring clarity, to bring godliness and clarity and resolution to a debate that could have crippled the Lord's work and perverted the gospel. The gospel that brought salvation to your heart and mine. The gospel that brought salvation to the lives of millions. And the leaders took responsibility to listen to God. To hear God's word and to bring certainty and conclusion. They made it official through a letter that they sent to the churches. Yes, there are a few lifestyle expectations for Christians but these don't save you. Salvation is a gift you receive by faith in Jesus. Isn't it interesting 
that in the very next story is another disagreement. Paul and Barnabas, first missionaries. They've already had one missionary tour. They're headed out for a second missionary tour. Who should we take along? And Barnabas says, let's take Mark, John Mark. He went with us the first time, and Paul says, not on your life. Mark failed us. Halfway through the journey, he left for home, and they sharply disagreed, verse 39. They couldn't come to agreement or get it worked out, so instead, Barnabas took Mark and went west to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went back north to encourage those new believers and preach the gospel in new places. And in both of these controversies, the church moves forward, the gospel is spread, God works powerfully. The difference between the controversies is significant. The debate about the gospel, it's clear who's right and who's wrong. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not works. There was no place for that Pharisee mindset. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, who's right? You may have an opinion, but the Bible doesn't tell us. And let me suggest to you that both were right. Serving Jesus effectively meant that they had to follow their own calling and go their own way and that they would part ways as brothers, not enemies. Nobody gets attacked. What's wrong with that, Paul? What's wrong with Barnabas? They don't go trying to recruit others to agree with them, trying to get the Antioch church to choose up sides. They don't do that. For the sake of the gospel, they find a way to both move forward without damaging the other. They each do what they believe God has called them to do, but they don't need to attack each other to get there. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? In fact, if you look at what Paul later says about John Mark, later, for Paul there is huge respect, even for the guy who Paul questioned his dependability here in Acts 15. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Paul says, send him to me. Send John Mark. He is so useful to my ministry. Send him to me. Here's what I want you to see. Conflict is going to be an inevitable part of people trying to hear God and follow his will together. And we need to learn from God how to manage conflict so that God's kingdom advances, so that we don't damage God's work. It's not enough just to be right.
It's possible to disagree, even to strongly disagree, to have conflict without having to get down and dirty, without loud arguments, without resorting to accusations, without having to damage people's reputations, without choosing up sides and needing to recruit others to join my side. And notice how the leaders lead. It would be so easy, wouldn't it, to just kind of duck down and stay low and keep a low profile, to stay in the trenches and avoid the hard decisions. Leaders lead, even when they disappoint some that they are leading. By the way, not everyone agreed with their decision. The Pharisee party dogged and criticized Paul for the whole of his ministry, but the leaders led. They were firm, even as they were very gracious. And about a chapter later, you're going to see Paul do something real unusual because he's argued that you don't need to be circumcised. But he's going to take one of his ministry partners and have him circumcised. What? By the way, have you seen these verses in Proverbs 6? This is Hebrew wisdom literature. It's a poetic form. It's a form that we call wisdom literature, but it has poetic elements, and the power builds through the text and builds to the very end of that proverb. And here's what it says. By the way, whenever you see there are three, yea, four, where there, it says there are six, yea, seven, the whole point is the last one. That's how Hebrew poetry works. Proverbs 6.16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, people looking down on other people. A lying tongue, we know God hates that. Hands that shed innocent blood, wow, murder? Absolutely, God hates that. A heart that devises wicked plans, conspiracies to do wrong. Something God hates. Feet that make haste to run to evil. You know, there are some people who just can't wait to sin. A false witness who breathes out lies. Yep, God hates that. And listen, here's the kicker. One who sows discord among brothers. Someone who tries to influence a brother to distrust another brother, who tries to get someone on their side against the other. How does God feel about that? It's detestable to him. Let me tell you, there are ways to manage conflict that don't damage the kingdom and don't and don't need us to be bitter and resentful and destructive. Disagreement is going to be an inevitable part of people trying to hear God and follow God together. But we've got to learn from God how to manage it 
so that God's kingdom advances. Here's a great quote from Larry Crabb. I found it just this morning in the book, The Safest Place on Earth. The difference between spiritual and unspiritual community is not whether conflict exists, but it is rather our attitude towards conflict and our approach to handling it. When conflict is seen as an opportunity to draw more fully on spiritual resources, we have the makings of a spiritual community. But let me tell you, it's also possible for conflict to take charge of a church. And when conflict takes over, the name for that is disunity. And it deeply grieves the Lord. Jesus prayed, John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father were one. He went to the cross, Colossians, Ephesians says, so that the dividing walls between us come down. How we love each other, Jesus said, John 13, testifies to the world that Jesus is our powerful Savior, or it convinces them that we are just as fake as what they see in the world. Even in disagreement, we've got to follow the Lord and obey his word. It's not enough just to be right. We've got to be right in how we are being right. Our world is becoming increasingly nasty. Have you noticed that? Oh my goodness. Here we are headed into another political season. I'm going to talk about that next Sunday morning. We live in a hostile, nasty world. The world is nasty. Shouldn't be so in the church. But too often, believers drag the world's combative attitudes right into the church and think it's okay. It's not okay. And it seems that it can be the worst. Hear me. It can be the worst among those who claim to be Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians. Sometimes it started with abusive leadership. Sometimes it started with bad followership. Many churches have gone through crises that left them weakened and sickly. Sometimes it begins because of moral failures, failures among the leaders. Sometimes it's because of bad theology. Sometimes it starts with just poor communication between leaders and congregation, or even just confusion about mission, where are we going and why? But we've got to get to the bottom of whatever has damaged our unity because I believe there's ample evidence that conflict has for a time hijacked Lakewood's ministry. 
hear me. I love you. God brought me here to love you and help you. And I want to say this as kindly and in love as I can. We've got some work to do at Lakewood to learn how to be Jesus followers and to act like Jesus followers in how we manage conflict and disagreement. So what happens when a church becomes dominated by conflict that they should have managed and resolved, but conflict that has taken over? The gospel is muted. We stop reaching out to the lost. And we get preoccupied with what's going on inside. The Holy Spirit is hindered. Do you know the Bible tells us that it's possible for us to pour water on the work of the Holy Spirit and to make the Holy Spirit ineffective. Wow. Beyond that, the world around us rejects our message. Jesus said they'll know we are Christians by what? Our theology? They will know us by our love. Even when, especially when we disagree. Sadly, conflicted churches also injure vulnerable new Christians. Causes them to want to escape the body that they need so desperately as new believers. And God allows us to experience repeated pain. In fact, we repeat it again and again and again until we own it and repent from it. In his loving discipline, God lets us, and he says, you don't have to keep doing this to yourself. And conflicted churches, Satan claims victory after victory. Now listen, he's going to lose in the end, but some of these spiritual skirmishes he claims victory. We can't give him victory. It belongs to Jesus. What are some signs that conflict has hijacked the church? I made just a list, but see if you've ever experienced any of these. Triangulated conflict. Instead of going to the person we have a disagreement with, we go to someone else. Sometimes a bunch of someone else's. Gossip, talking about someone's problem when I am neither part of the problem nor part of the solution, talking about it. That's gossip. By the way, it doesn't have to be false to be gossip. If it's false, it's slander. Close to that, character assassination, tearing someone down in the eyes of another. In Corinth, they talked about party spirit, choosing up sides, us versus them, questioning others' motives. We have no idea what goes on inside someone's heart, but we cynically question or accuse them of evil motives. Dismissiveness. I don't care what you think or feel. Distrust and disrespect of leaders. Angry reactiveness and discussion and debate. Blood pressures rise and... Arguments get loud, perhaps to the point of public blow-ups. 
combative rivalry. This is a competition that I've got to win and he's got to lose. Grudge holding. We never forgive. Offense bearing. We pick up and carry other people's grudges too. Repeated pain. And that's the disciplinary love of our Heavenly Father who lets us feel the pain. It's painful, says Hebrews 12. Listen to me. When a church is captured by disunity and hijacked by conflict, nobody wins. Everybody loses. And the work of God and everyone's, everyone who's a part of it loses. Now, I hope that you would never have ever experienced or been part of any of those things. It would be a blessing if we had never experienced any of that as a church. But we have, haven't we? Listen, God deeply loves Lakewood Church. Jesus is passionate for his bride at Lakewood Church. He loves to bring healing to our wounds. And God is not confused about what we need. And he wants our church to be restored even more than we want our church to be restored. He hungers for that and waits for us to be willing to ask some hard questions of our own hearts. And there is hope. Our plan is to enter a multiple stage process that we hope to complete before launching the search for our next pastor. It involves an inventory that we're going to ask all of you to take about your church, an intensified emphasis on prayer, and then a seminar that we will lead on all the that biblically goes on in congregational healing. And then we'll enter a phase of intense research into Lakewood's history to identify the roots of our struggles. And that's followed by a leadership summit where we'll bring our leaders together and attempt to hear what Jesus has to say for this church, like he said in Revelation to the churches. And the final step in this is what we call a solemn assembly where we come before the Lord in confession and repentance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit's cleansing. By God's grace, we can get there. Because of God's power, we will get there. Because God loves to bring healing, I can assure you it's going to be beautiful and we'll feel it and know it when we experience it. I love you. God has brought me here as your interim pastor to love you and to help bring you back towards spiritual health and wholeness. I've gotten far enough in that process to know that we've got some painful chapters that need healing and we've got to look back at them. We've come through a time, perhaps a long time, when conflict has dominated here at our church. And one of the reasons God led me here to Lakewood was to love you and help you work through it 
and to learn to navigate controversy without damaging our witness and our ministry. So that when our next pastor arrives, the environment is clean, exciting, positive. And that next pastor can step on solid ground to lead our ministry forward. And if you've never experienced how God can heal hurts and repair wounds and bring new power to a church's ministry, hang around. God is going to take us through a process that is going to return such joy and such delight that you aren't going to want to miss it. It's coming. This is not my church, Lord. This is your church. Even our founding members know to say that. This is not our church. This is your church. And God, we want to be more fully engaged in what you want to do. We want to lay down the stuff that gets in your way. We want to sweep it aside. As Paul said, to forget what is behind, but we've got to walk through some pain to get there. Help us, Lord. We're desperate for you. And we pray this in the wonderful, strong name of Jesus.